Close Horse is brought to you with support from the following sustainable brands. Selena Sanders, a social impact brand that specializes in upcycle clothing using only reclaimed vintage or thrifted materials from tea towels, linens, blankets, and quilts. Sustainably crafted in Los Angeles, each piece is designed to last in one's closet for generations to come. Maximum style, minimal carbon footprint. Picnic wear, a slow fashion brand made by hand in New York City from vintage and dead stock textiles. Picnic wear strives for minimal waste, but maximum authenticity. Future vintage over future garbage. Find Picnic wear on Instagram at Picnic wear, and that's wear, W-E-A-R, and at www.picnicwear.com. No flight back vintage, bringing fun new life to old things always using recycled and secondhand materials to make dope-ass shit for dope-ass people. See more on Instagram at NoFlightBackVintage. Shift clothing out of beautiful Astoria, Oregon, with a focus on natural fibers, simple hardworking designs, and putting fat people first. Discover more at ShiftWheeler.com. Late to the party, creating one-of-a-kind statement clothing from vintage, salvaged, and thrifted textiles. They hope to tap into the dreamy memories we all hold. Floral curtains, a childhood dress, the wallpaper in your best friend's rec room. All while creating modern, sustainable garments that you'll love wearing and have for years to come. Late to the party is passionate about celebrating and preserving textiles, the memories they hold, and the stories they have yet to tell. Check them out on Instagram at Late to the Party People. Vino Vintage, based just outside of LA. We love the hunt of shopping secondhand because you never know what you might find. Catch us at flea markets around Southern California by following us on Instagram at vino.vintage so you don't miss our next event. Shop Journal Vintage, specializing in upcycled, handmade, and vintage fashion for all genders. Owner Laura makes each piece by hand with love in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, with an emphasis on upcycled menswear, tie-dye, modern jewelry, cottagecore collars, and everything in between. Shop Journal makes pieces they love and hopes you will too. Getting dressed should always be fun. See more on Instagram at shop underscore journal. Old Flame Mending helps you keep your clothes intact through clothing repair, visible mending, and tailoring. Through extending the life of textiles, Old Flame Mending makes your pieces not only wearable and functional again, but also unique and beautiful. This mending duo is based in Pittsburgh, but they take mail-in mending orders from anywhere in the U.S. For more information, visit them at oldflamemending.com or follow them on Instagram at oldflamemending. Gabriella Antonis is a visual artist and an ethical trade fashion designer. But Gabriella is also a radical feminist micro-business. She's the one-woman band trying to help you understand why slow fashion is what the earth needs. The one-woman band to help you build your own brand. She can take your fashion line from just a concept and do your sketches, pattern making, grading, sourcing, cutting, and sewing. The second option is for those who aren't trying to start a business and who just want ethical garments. Gabriella Antonis will create custom made-to-measure garments just for you. Her goal is to help help one person of any size at a time, including beyond size 40. To inquire about this serendipitous intersectional offering of either concept, DM her on Instagram to book a consultation. Please follow her on Instagram and Twitter at Gabriella Antonis. Dylan Page is an online clothing and lifestyle brand based out of St. Louis, Missouri. 
Our products are chosen with intention for the conscious community. Everything we carry is animal-friendly, ethically made, sustainably sourced, and cruelty-free. Dylan Page is for those who never stop questioning where something comes from. We know that personal experience dictates what's sustainable for you, and we are here to help guide and support you to make choices that fit your needs. Check us out at dylanpage.com and find us on Instagram at dylanpagelifeandstyle. Salt Hats, purveyors of truly sustainable hats, hand-blocked, sewn, and embellished in Detroit, Michigan. Find us on Instagram at Salt Hats. Wide-Eyed Vintage, a curator of truly covetable vintage from Minneapolis, Minnesota. Wide-Eyed Vintage encourages the experimental spirit of dressing up and will provide you with all the special pieces that will make your wardrobe truly unique. Dedicated to preserving the craftsmanship of clothes, Wide-Eyed Vintage only selects pieces that are well-made, pieces that have been proven to last beyond their lifetimes, so you too can enjoy them for more lifetimes to come. See more on Instagram at wide underscore eyed underscore vintage. Karen Kinney Studio. Located in western Massachusetts, Karen specializes in handcrafted earrings from found, upcycled, and repurposed fabrics, as well as other eco-friendly curios, all with a hint of nostalgia, a dollop of whimsy, a dash of color, and 100% fun. Karen is an artist slash designer who believes the materials we use matter. See more on Instagram at Karen Kinney Studio or online at www.cKinney.com. Gentle Vibes Vintage. We are purveyors of polyester and psychedelic relics. We encourage experimentation and play not only in your wardrobe, but in your home too. We have thousands of killer vintage pieces ready for their next adventure. See them all on Instagram at Gentle Vibes Vintage. Thumbprint is Detroit's only fair trade marketplace located in the historic Eastern Market. Our small business specializes in products handmade by empowered women in South Africa, making a living wage creating things they love like hand-painted candles and ceramics. We also carry a curated assortment of sustainable and natural locally made goods. Thumbprint is a great gift destination for both the special people in your life and for yourself. Browse our online store at thumbprintdetroit.com and find us on Instagram at Thumbprint Detroit. St. Evans is a New York City-based vintage retailer that is dedicated to bringing you those special vintage pieces you'll reach for again and again. More than just an online store, St. Evans is dedicated to sharing the stories and history behind the garments. 20% of all sales are donated to a new charitable organization each month, amplifying and supporting causes like food insecurity, racial justice, homelessness, and LGBTQ plus support. For the month of February, St. Evans is supporting Canal Cafeteria, a nonprofit that provides sliding scale fresh produce bags to the Lower East Side neighborhood of New York City. Your vintage purchase from St. Evans supports a small, women of color run business while giving back to the collective community we're all a part of. New Vintage is released every Thursday at 12 p.m. Eastern Time at wearsaintevens.com with previews of new pieces and more brought to you on Instagram at where underscore st dot evens. That's at where saint evens. Shop Vintage. 
do good and wear St. Evans. Welcome to Close Horse, the podcast that is getting really into eBay, (laughs) like it's 2005 over here. I'm your host, Amanda. Some people call this month February. In fact, I've heard a lot of people call this month February, but around here, it's secondhand month. And today, we'll be talking all about it. Specifically, we're going to be talking about how we as consumers can resell our unwanted clothing and keep it in circulation rather than, you know, throwing it in the trash. I'm going to go into some disturbing facts about that later in the episode, but it goes without saying that there are already more clothing and textiles in this world than we could ever use. We'll get things rolling with a conversation with Haley. You know, she dropped by back in ye old days of 2020 to talk to us about her adventure selling secondhand. Since then, she's been experimenting with all of the various secondhand platforms out there, so she's going to give us an update on her results, and she has a lot of really good tips and tricks that I think will help you sell your secondhand clothes too, whether you're just looking to clean out your closet or you know you want to start a side gig. After that, we'll be talking with Jennifer, who is working on starting a secondhand shopping platform that cares about doing the right thing. I can't wait for you to meet her. I'm so excited about her idea. But before we get into that, it's time to thank our newest Patreon supporters. First is Annie Arendt of Columbus, Ohio. Unfortunately, I could not stalk her on the internet, which was a bummer for me because as you know, I like to fancy myself an internet detective. But I can only assume that she is a lovely person because some of my favorite people are from Columbus. Thank you for your support, Annie. Next is Hannah Simone Conover Arthurs, the one-woman knitting machine behind Legitinits. Seriously, go check her out on Instagram at Legitinits. She is actually right now working on a very cool how-to post for a clothes horse. I'm really excited about it because she does some really cool stuff on her own. Uh, So stay tuned. Um, Thank you so much for your support, Hannah. Next is Rose Beerhorst, who was our guest a few episodes ago to talk about her business making rugs out of recycled textiles, among other things. I know you all loved her. Uh, Hopefully she'll be making an appearance on clotheshorse.world sometime soon. Thank you so much, Rose. Also, you may have noticed that we have a new Pegasus sponsor, Thumbprint Detroit, a fair trade boutique that sells all kinds of amazing fair trade and local products. It's actually a really great option for finding a gift, so please go check them out. Uh, You can find their deets in the show notes. Um, You definitely want to just take a peek at their website. (laughs) All of your support allows me to hopefully someday make clothes horse my real actual paying job. Every time you choose to support me, it makes my dream feel so much closer. So thank you so much. If you're interested in supporting my work on clothes horse via Patreon, you can find out more at patreon.com slash clothes horse podcast. You can 
also send a direct donation via Venmo to at crystal underscore visions. And you also don't have to do either of those things because there are plenty of ways you can show your support for Close Horse and the work I'm doing here without spending a dime. You can leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. You could subscribe on Apple Podcasts. You could recommend it to a friend or share our content on Instagram. You could contribute to the closehorse.world blog, or you could just keep listening because having you here is the most important thing of all. We're not going to have any hotline messages today, which is pretty tragic when you think about it, because that means we don't get to try a new phone ringing sound. But There'll be more in the next episode, I'm sure. And we just didn't have the time. There's, you know, the conversations were just kind of long today. If you have something to share, a random thought, a question, a reaction to what we're discussing here, your feelings about artificial phone sounds, please call the Close Horse Hotline, 717-925-7417. Or you can send me a voice memo or other audio recorded file. You can send that via email to amanda at closehorse.world. Dustin, our AV crew around here, says that the microphones on the iPhone are very, very good. And I'm sure it's similar on other smartphones. So you'll actually probably make a pretty good sounding recording if you decide to go that way. And if for some reason your file is too large to email, um, share it with me on Google Docs or, you know, if that you don't have access to that, just drop me a line and we'll figure something out. I do have one message to read, like one that was actually typed, because, you know, you can also email me at amanda at closehorse.world. I know a lot of you prefer to DM me on Instagram, but I'm just going to be very honest with you. It gets really hard to keep track of messages on there because I can't really search for the subject. So, for example, someone sent me an amazing message about Canadian raghouses And I can't find it anywhere. If you're the person who sent that, will you please message me? Because I really want to share what you told me. And I just, I have dug through my DMs for like half an hour and I couldn't find it. So if you have something important that you want to share with everyone else, please email or call. I just don't want to lose your messages. It's, it doesn't really honor the work and effort that you put into it and you know, it, it also is just kind of stressful for me too. So none of us are having a good time with that. That doesn't mean you can't DM me like this and that. Just like if you have something really important, definitely send it in a more old-fashioned way. I do have this one message from Michelle, and it's some hot laundry advice for all of you. It's really important to be able to care for your clothes to make them last longer. And it's also important to know how to clean all of your secondhand finds. So here's what she has to say. My favorite stain remover is Carbona. It comes in a small bottle and you need to know what the stain is. Basically, there's different varieties. They have one for fats and grease, dairy. They have different ones for wine and one for grass stains and blood. Actually, Blue Dawn dish soap works great as a stain remover for grease and food. I will second that. If you have a greasy situation going on, I only keep Dawn around for those kinds of things. I don't actually wash dishes with it, but it is an amazing laundry miracle. Peroxide works for blood. And she has this really great suggestion. People should keep a stain remover in their bedrooms or bathrooms where they take their clothes off. 
treat it before you throw it in the basket. And I think when you think about it, that is so smart because I'm assuming you're probably doing the same thing in my house. All the stain remover stuff is by the washing machine. But realistically, by the time a garment makes it downstairs to the washer, that stain has set in. And so what I should really do is put that stuff by the clothes hamper or like in the cabinet in the bathroom. So I'm going to make that change. Soaking things in OxyClean works too. I'll second that. And she also says she sometimes soaks whites in very hot water. So how about you? Do you have some laundry tips? You know, send them my way. I think of myself as a laundry whiz, but like I've never heard of Carbona. So I bet you have a lot of knowledge I've never heard of before too. And I'm also always looking for zero waste um, laundry products and techniques and whatnot. So I'm sure I'm not the only one who wants to hear all about that. So as I mentioned, Haley is returning to tell us all about her success selling secondhand on various platforms. Also, Haley is a part of the team behind clotheshorse.world, so we'll be talking about the blog a little bit too. Uh, So let's just get into it. Hey, Haley. How's it going? Good. How are you? You know, uh, working on the pod, getting ready for the blog. We'll talk about that in a few because you're a big part Mm -hmm. of that. Um, So you, gosh, when did we talk on the show before? Was that like December? We talked about all of the different places that you can sell secondhand. And you said, okay, I'm going to go out and test these, test them all, and kind of report back with my results. Yep. And you have some really interesting findings. So why don't you tell us, you know, what you did? Yeah. So I, um, like I talked about last time on the podcast, I've been selling on Poshmark to make extra income when I was in college. Um, so my Poshmark was all ready to go. I had hopped on Mercari back in college, but I never sold anything there. Um, and so I didn't have to create an account there. And my account shows that I've been on there since 2015, but I didn't start selling it until December. And then uh, with Vinted, I had to completely create an account and same with Depop. So those are the four platforms I am on right now and kind of testing. Right now, I crosslist almost all my listings across platforms. Um, the only mm-hmm. ones I don't do across platforms is stuff I'm pricing at like 10 or below because Mercari and Depop prioritize free shipping and I can't mm-hmm. offer that at all Okay. Um, with items that are priced that low. Um, so I will make money on Poshmark because as we'll kind of get into later, Poshmark, one of the pros is people are used to paying for shipping. Um, because, like, the free shipping option wasn't a thing for most of the first years in Poshmark. Um, and then Poshmark, you can only offer free shipping if you're, like, offering to likers. So buyers are just really used to paying that, like, $7 shipping fee. Um, mm-hmm. So, like, you don't have to fight as hard to, like, get them to pay for shipping. I mean, you know how I feel about free shipping. But, yeah. <laughs> Same. Most of the time, it's like you said, people on Poshmark kind of expect it and are fine, but there are some people who will push you so hard on it. And you're like, yeah, yeah. but I'm literally the one paying for the shipping then. And you want to buy this Kirby t-shirt for $5 from me? Like, no. I had Right. So it's like negative money. <laughs> yeah. No, one time someone asked me for a discount on a bundle and they wanted free shipping. And Poshmark literally was like, your new balance will be $2.71. And I was like, wait, I would be paying someone to take this stuff. <laughs> yep. Yeah. No, I, yep. Yeah. It's funny because uh, 
I had had no low balls on any platforms until like last week. Um, and then I like started to get some low ball offers that I'm like, I would actually have to pay you to take stuff off my hands. Yeah. So no thank you. Yeah. I like one person, she like messaged me. She's like, why did you decline my offer? And I'm like, well, I offer free shipping. And so your offer of $5 made it. So I was making negative $2 because I was paying, um, like $5 for shipping. And then Mercari was taking the rest of that percentage, like every cent uh, that was above that, that I was then making. And she like never responded. And I was like, yeah, go away. <laughs> I am paying for shipping out of my pocket. And I think not enough people who buy on these realize that. That's right. I think I cannot say that enough. If you get free shipping on eBay, on Etsy, on Poshmark, on Depop, all of the places, the, the seller pays that shipping. It's not like, like Poshmark's like, hey, here's a coupon for free shipping for you to use at the post office. It's like not how it works. No, no. It means, yeah, we pay for shipping. Um, and like for me, which I talk a little bit in my blog post, I need to make at least $2 to make it worth it to package an item and like bring it to the post office. And if you are at that $2 mark, it gets put in the post office and it gets shipped when I sold other things for more money. So I'm already going. Yes, good fair. I, I think that that is a great rule to put in place. I'm like, I'm like, you get crappy service if I'm only making $2. <laughs> um, Which is fair so, enough, you know? <laughs> yeah, because today I, I sold something for $2, like I think two days ago, and I couldn't find like my real packing tape. So it's like the like weirdest looking packaging because it's like with like, painter's tape like all taped up because it was like what I had and I'm like I, I'm like this is actually more expensive shipping because I'm using nice tape uh but it looks like so janky um, and I just like dropped it off in the post office and I'm like well I'm only making two dollars for this so if like the the buyer is really unhappy like I don't care <laughs> I think that that is very reasonable you get two dollars worth of effort you know yeah <laughs> Yeah, and that two dollars worth of effort did not involve me making a trip to the grocery store and a buy packing tape. So. <laughs> so, okay, so you have been cross listing like crazy, which yep. I can't even imagine how much work that is. I would say you should always be cross posting. Now that I've right. done it, because you have to write the listing and you have to take the photos, and so it takes like no time to upload it on four platforms compared to how much time it takes to like make the listing itself. Makes sense. Yeah. Um, so I will never, I will never go back to one platform. I would say after this experiment. That's really smart. So why don't you tell us your results? Um. So uh, I'll dive a little bit more into like the actual numbers on my blog post. But basically, I sold the most on Poshmark by like three or four times more. Um. But I like. I, like, kind of want to, like, preface that with the fact that I have a huge following on Poshmark from when I used to sell on Poshmark. So whenever I share something that is, in theory, I mean, Poshmark's complicated and everybody's sharing all the time. But in theory, that is going to 72,000 profiles Mm -hmm. uh, versus Depop and Mercari and Vinted, where I have, like, maybe six followers. Right. And then the other thing with Poshmark is there's – like certain items on Poshmark that people look for that sell quickly. And I had some black milk, which is a, I mean, they're fast fashion Australian company. Um, and their stuff like actually, like they do actually do limited releases where like it won't come back. 
And mm-hmm. so stuff will actually sometimes increase in value. So I made a lot mm-hmm. on Poshmark because I was selling basically these fast fashion dresses that I bought for 20 to $50 for like somewhere between 70 and a hundred. Wow. Um, that's amazing. Uh, because a few of them were like one of a kind sample sale pieces where I had mm-hmm. like paid like $50 for them to ship me like a bundle of that that stuff and then I also sold so Laura Ashley dress which is just going to get you more money um and then I also had just some higher end like vintage that while I still sold it for 40 to 50 dollars which was really cheap for that type of vintage it like really boosted my Poshmark earning um mm-hmm. so I feel like Poshmark somewhat unfairly won this month and so I'll be kind of curious to see if that continues to be a trend but I did do pretty well on both Mercari and Vinted they came out at about the same amount it's like a ten dollar difference but it's still like a third of what I made on Poshmark um, for each of those uh, and uh, Depop I I don't think I like Depop I will continue to sell on Depop because maybe I'll get better at it um but on Depop, I'm by far making the least amount of money by, like, per item. Depop's, like, notifications, I don't know, their their user interface just in general is bad. But I get, I have a really hard time, like, my messages don't always notify me or even email me. Or uh, one time someone commented on one of my posts, and I could not figure out where to find that comment or reply to their comment. And I spent, I think, 15 minutes in Depop trying to figure out how to find oh my the gosh. comment. And I feel like you can't really even see easily, like, who's liked your stuff. I don't know. I I find the user interface of Depop really confusing. And then my biggest pet peeve with Depop is all these other platforms have automatic calculators where you put in how much you want to charge for it, and they take Mm -hmm. out the shipping and, like, how much they make. Depop doesn't do that. What? Which is so weird. Calculate it yourself. So so when I accept an offer, I have no idea if I'm making money. And then I dislike it because, like, it sounds weird that I don't like that I get the money instantly, but I don't like it because I'm so conditioned by these other platforms where you have to wait for the seller to receive their item Mm -hmm. to have your money released. And for some reason, that just, like, makes me feel safer. But Depop, what they do is they transfer the whole amount the buyer pays to your, your PayPal, and then they pull the money that they are owed out of your PayPal. So you have like two PayPal transactions. You have money sitting in PayPal. And I'm sure there's a better way to do this, but I cannot figure out the platform for the life of me. I know that is really, that is really how it is. And I, I hadn't used Depop in like years and hadn't even thought about it. And like at least three years. And last year someone bought something off of, for me off of Depop, (laughs) which I don't have anymore. And it was a whole thing where I had to return the money and Depop would not refund my fee that they took. They were like, sorry, yeah. don't do that. And I was like, well, you need to figure out something with the user interface that shows people that this post on my Depop is like five years old because that's not fair. Right. And, and I've, ha- I've had other friends complain about this. Um, it, it's, it sucks. It's like a very lazy interface on their end, I think. Yeah, no, I think it's a, I mean, as you know, I'm a UX designer. I think it's a horribly designed user interface. And I love the concept of it. I just feel like it's poorly executed. But I have to say, like, I kind of take, like, a grain of salt with my feelings with that because this is also a UK company, and they just might have different user patterns that are, like, more, like, European. Like, these probably weren't made by American designers. 
True. So maybe it makes more sense if you're in Europe than if you're in the U.S. because it just doesn't feel like a U.S. app. And when you mentioned that you couldn't get your feedback from them because they don't do that, that's why I don't feel safe selling on Depop is if I sell on Poshmark or Mercari or Vinted, because they're holding the money, all that money will go back to the seller and you just, like, won't have to deal with it. And that right. just makes me feel so much safer than, like, knowing that I could make, like, negative $15 on an item because I'm paying for shipping on Depop. So mm-hmm. I lose both the fee and the shipping and then I potentially have to pay for them to ship it back, which for me, I'm just like, can they just keep it? Like, I don't care at that point. Right, right. Like, yeah. they can just list it on their Depop. I'm not offended at that. Well, I'm like, I'm annoyed at that point. But, like, I just would <laughs> rather, like, not pay to have that, like, item come back to me, especially since I'm selling to, like, get things out of my house. But I think it has a lot of potential, and I think if I could figure out how to use it better – I would really like it and be able to actually sell a lot more. I just haven't figured that out yet. Yeah, yeah. I mean, some people make a killing there. Yeah, I'm, like, not – like, most of my favorite vintage shops say that, like, Depop, as far as these platforms go, is, like, more their favorite. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I – I, like, feel like there's a way to make it work for you, and I just, like, haven't figured that out. Like, even just this week, I figured out – that to get your stuff to appear higher up in the feed, you just have to edit it and then save it, and then it posts like you posted it that day. Um, yeah. And, like, that was, like, something – because, like, with Poshmark, you share your items, and that's how you get it back up in the search space. Um, and so that's essentially Depop. That's, like, their share. But, like, nowhere do they explain that. Um, <laughs> and so it's just, like, it's not intuitive. And I'm, like – I. I guess it's not like I like Poshmark because like I never felt like I had to figure out how to use Poshmark. Right, right. Yeah, Poshmark um, is pretty. Actually, they walk you through it a lot more. It's it's very straightforward. And same with Mercari and Vinted. Both of them I felt like walked me through it. Um, oh, I've just sold two items as we're speaking. I went through and made a bunch of offers to likers today. Mm. Um, Okay. Uh, on Mercari, and I just made, like, hella sales. Um, I just sold three items while we've been sitting here talking. <laughs> that's um, awesome. <laughs> that's very exciting. So, okay, um, so Depop kind of wah-wah. Uh, yeah. I have so many questions about Mercari because I – honestly, like, I'd heard it here and there, and I think that, that maybe I've heard it in some podcast ads, but not a ton. And But they're, like – the. I have the name recognition, and lately I feel like Mercari has maybe been throwing a lot more money at Google yeah. because I've been getting Mercari search results in Google Shopping when I'm looking for random weird stuff, and so I have been Mercari curious where I, like, signed up for an account, and I've been, like, browsing it, but I haven't actually bought anything from it. I thought uh, initially it was for home goods, so I was surprised to see clothes on there. They've always been everything. Because um, I remember being on here in college, and, like, one of the reasons I ended up choosing not to sell on it is because they did men's as well. Um, and as we talked about last time with Poshmark, I didn't like when they started having men's on there because I started to see, like, creepy men on the platform. <laughs> yep. And so that's what, like, had deterred me a little bit um, from selling with Mercari is I knew there were men on here. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I get that's, it. Like, so terrible. But, like, that. <laughs> Sorry, uh, men, but where we are. <laughs> yes. Um, like, like men, teach your male friends to not be creepy to people who sell online, and then we cannot have. No. Can we not just like sell stuff on the internet safely? 
Like, can we just right. have one thing? You know what I mean? Yes. <laughs> um, and so that was my initial reason I didn't go on Mercari is partially because it wasn't just clothing. And I had a couple of friends on there in college who just said that everybody's looking for something that's just really cheap, which mm-hmm. I do agree with on Mercari. But I've so far had really good experiences, again, talking to the women who I've sold things to. Um, but, but Mercari has, like, a sketchier scammer vibe than Poshmark. It is basically Poshmark, but with a bit of a, like, scammy vibe. Um, which Poshmark also vibe. has scammer vibes but like mercari is like a lot more scammy feeling where like for example on mercari i'll get a message from somebody and they're like hey like i would like to buy this for this amount of money like can you lower the price so i can buy it on my other account and i'm like what um and i'll lower the price and they'll buy it on their other account and the reason they do that is because mercari automatically gives you like a like zero star review if you or like a low review if you don't review another like the seller's items and so people have these side accounts where they just, like, don't review anybody's stuff, and it doesn't matter if that they have zero stars. So they keep it separate from their seller's account, from what I can tell. Uh, yeah. That is, like, my, my hunch. Okay. But I, I don't actually know if that's true, but it makes it feel scammy and weird. It um, is weird. Yeah. And all of those people I've had good experiences selling to, but basically they're people who, for whatever reason, don't want to, like – has record of that purchase on their selling account, which just seems like bizarre. So I don't know if maybe they're flipping or I, I don't care. Like the stuff is gone and I got my money. So like, yeah. whatever. but so it, it's just like super weird. Yeah. Um, it's super weird. And it just like, yeah, makes me like raise an eyebrow. I feel like <laughs> a little bit. Mercari is literally the same thing as Poshmark, just like, scammier and people want to pay even less for their stuff because mercari um you can you they promote people who offer free shipping so they there's mm-hmm. just a lot of pressure to offer free shipping yeah i'm um, like i guess it's that like i thought there was a lot of pressure to offer free shipping on poshmark until i was on these other platforms and like no i hate it because it's like it benefits the customer obviously but it also benefits the platform because they're taking a percentage of your sales so it's in their best yep. interest for you to sell stuff, right? But what it's not taking into account is that you take the hit to pay for the shipping. Like, you don't get a special deal on shipping from Mercari or from Poshmark or anyone. No, and Mercari shipping is – it's cheaper than Poshmark, but it's still expensive because Poshmark is so expensive because, you like, all shipping is paying for up to five pounds of stuff. Mm. Um, On Poshmark, what I do like about Mercari Vintage and Depop is you set your weight. And it calculates shipping for that. I hate free shipping, and I hate that customers expect it. But, like, as somebody who just wants stuff out of their wardrobe, I just, like, have given in. Yeah, exactly. Do you want to do things, like, ethically, or do you want to make money? Mm -hmm. So, like, I've just relented, and I do free shipping on Depop and Mercari because it just, like, helps me sell stuff. And, like I said, I just need to be making more than $2 an item. Past that, I don't super care. (laughs) <laughs> Unless it's, like, a 1950s, like, authentic vintage piece. Right, right. Um, but anything that's modern that I would just be donating to a thrift store or trying to sell at Buffalo Exchange, whatever. And I will say, I think you make significantly more on these websites than you do going to Buffalo Exchange or Crossroads. Oh, yes, so for sure, for sure. I, I made over $500 in the last two months, which is wild. Um, I've never made that much. Again, that's due to the black milk and the vintage I have. I'll be posting monthly on the blog how, like, 
how much I've made in the last month and where my sales have been and what I've sold. Um, just because like, I would love to have that transparency from literally any of these influencers who are like Poshmark or Mercari influencers that they like never talk about like what they make. And I'm like, I want to know what you make. Um, so I'm putting my, my blog post out there for all the nosy people who want to know how much I make on each platform and what each platform is extracting from me and fees and things. Because like when I'm, re- when I was researching these platforms, that was the info I wanted. And instead I just got like all these fluff pieces that like didn't really dive into the financials, which like at the end of the day, you're selling clothes to make money. Like otherwise you would just donate them. Right. Yeah. Right. And, you know, the things they never talk about is all the work they're putting into it. Like, that's the thing about Poshmark. It is so much work. So much work. Um, And that's the other thing that I'll be tracking for my blog is I'm trying to track my hours that I spend each month and break it down into an hourly wage of what I make. Um, and I made a good amount. Um, I didn't make minimum wage because minimum wage in Seattle is 15. Um, but I, like, I felt like I made a good amount of money per hour over December and January. But I think February, I'm going to be making like $2 an hour. We'll see. Um, How? After you and I talked, I started reading all these like fluff pieces from like Poshmark influencers. Because there's, there's a lot of them that I follow on Instagram, too, who, you know, they, they're doing videos all the time. They have a lot of content around how they're like, you know, these like yeah. tunes of Poshmark, but then there's never any real data. It's kind of a scam for a lot of these women because they are working so hard and they have nothing to show for it. It has kind of that multi-level marketing vibe to it sometimes. Um, And, like, when you go through and you start reading, you start to find these articles about, like, why I quit Poshmark. And all these women are talking about how they had zero time with their families once they started on Poshmark. Um, and that just kind of really reminds me of, like, multi-level marketing. Oh, 100%. Where they, like, advertise that you can be a mom and be a stay-at-home mom and take care of your kids and spend time with your kids and make a bunch of money. And I feel like Poshmark kind of does the same thing. And Mercari. Vincent, I've never seen them advertise themselves. Um, and then Depop, since they're so Gen Z-focused, those are not generally the, like, late 20s, early 30s stay-at-home mom demographic. <laughs> Um, but like, I feel like that's what like Poshmark kind of thrives off of. The other thing that's interesting that I've learned is Poshmark has an affiliate program. So those people who are posting to their social media all the time about Poshmark, they're probably getting paid by Poshmark to do that. Oh, interesting. Oh man. I want to know so much more about that. Um, I, I got accepted into the program, but like, I can't bear to post on my Facebook like that. <laughs> <laughs> I can't do it. Um, so I just like look at what campaigns are offered and I think for bigger like resale influencers, they probably pay cash, but they mainly just pay in Poshmark credit, which is fine because you can find so many cool things on Poshmark. Um, mm-hmm. that like wouldn't really like bum me out. Like if the right campaign came along, I think I would totally post on my Instagram for like five to $10 of Poshmark credit. Um, yeah, yeah, because, I like, it would make me money because, like, I have an Instagram following. Maybe they would go and check out my Poshmark or whatever. If you are in, like, the secondhand, like, bubble on Instagram, you see so much of that content right now. And it's all yeah. like, very, like, I'm a girl. It's, like, girl power. Like, I'm a girl yeah. boss. I'm a mompreneur. Yeah, very girl boss. Yeah, yeah. And so I get, you know, I have, like, girl boss PTSD, so I am immediately, like, 
red flag for me, <laughs> but it's very beguiling. I can see how it would be really appealing and bring people into this idea that they too could work from home and make a, a killing selling used clothes, but it's, yep. it's just not that simple. No, it's definitely not. Um, and like, I don't know how any, like, unless you're really specialized and have time to like kind of pick and really curate, I don't know how you like make it. Like, I know people make an income out of this because like, I know people who do that, but it like blows my mind as somebody who's like casually doing it. Um, oh yeah. Because There's I just, no I way. don't know how you get the profit. Yeah. I, I don't uh, know how you do either. Unless uh, you're yeah, like going to the bins, I guess, you know? Yeah, if you're going to the bins or, you know, if you live somewhere a little bit more rural where the thrift shops aren't as, like, marked up. Because, like, here, the cheapest thing you can find at Goodwill, like, in Seattle, is probably, like, $5, uh, which you can't make profit on that in Poshmark. No, definitely not. Um, You could maybe make profit on it off Vinted, but Vinted doesn't have as big of an audience. Because the other reason I think Poshmark has a lot going for it is they just have the biggest number of users. Um, yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, it's, it's become like a household name, I feel like, you know? Yeah. Um, I agree. So if you were only going to sell on one place, would you pick Poshmark? I think I would because I think I'm going to continue to make the most money per item on Poshmark just because their customers are trained to pay for their own shipping. Um, I do really like Vinted. So if Vinted had the audience that Poshmark has, I would choose Vinted. Because what I really like about Vinted is their transparency. So there is no way I have to pay for shipping on Vinted. It is always on the buyer, which is very exciting to me. And then the other thing I like that I didn't – I wish they were more transparent up front if this is what they're doing, is they advertise that they take no fee and they take no percentage, which is, like, technically true but also not true. So if you list something for $20, you're going to get paid $20 for that. But what the buyer is going to see as they're checking out is they're going to see a $2 fee. That's a 10% fee that goes to Vinted. So they put all that is transparent to the buyer, Mm -hmm. Um, which is actually, funnily enough, why I think their platform isn't as big, is I think buyers don't like knowing that. (laughs) Like, I don't think they care about the transparency there. And so instead they see, like, why am I paying $2 for nothing? Right. Right. I mean, and I'm like, I, because usually I'm paying $2 for nothing. <laughs> right. Right. I love the idea of the buyers seeing that, but I know, I mean, that's got to be so unappealing to them, but that yep. is the reality. Someone's got to pay that fee. Like, like these, like Poshmark, I can't even imagine the cost of running Poshmark. I mean, even just from like a data storage perspective, right? Like, right. Like, Someone's got to pay for that. It's not a non-profit. Even if it was a no. non-profit, someone would still have someone to pay have for to that. Pay. Yeah. yeah. It's definitely, like, interesting because, like, I think, like, from, like, of the ethics standpoint, I prefer Vinted. I think Vinted offers the most transparency. Um, and it's, like, pretty much the same platform as everything else. Mm-hmm. Um, like, it's pretty much the same as Poshmark and Mercari. What I, the biggest thing that, like, I would like on both Vinted and Depop that maybe I'm wrong and these features exist there, is I like that on Poshmark and Mercari, you can just offer to all your likers. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, like, you can kind of lower the price without, like, publicly lowering the price. Um, right. And so I do really like that. And Vinted and Depop don't have that, as far as I can tell. Depop doesn't really have a offer function at all, because what I, I needed this explained to me when I 
like made my first sale. Someone was like, would you do blah, blah, blah for this? And I was like, yeah, can you submit an offer? And she's like, what are you talking about? And I'm like, oh, I like getting used to selling on other platforms. Um, like, how do I like give you that offer that I just told you I'm cool with? And she's like, you just lower the price. And so like, I find that like annoying. Like, I feel like you should be able to offer. Um, but as we talked about, Depop is very like bare bones user interface. I feel like that's why like I struggle to make sales there. For Poshmark, like around mid-month, I'll make an offer to all my likers on all my items in Poshmark. And then in Macari, I'll do that at, like, the beginning of the month. That usually, like, accounts for a decent chunk of my sales for the month. And so the fact that I can't do that on Vinted and Depop, I feel like, is, like, a very big detriment to, like, a seller. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I agree. I would also just say the search function on Depop is terrible also. And oh, really? If you – yeah, I mean, I think – there's just like shortcomings for Depop. Uh, I I get what they're trying to do there. They were trying to be Instagram, but for selling secondhand clothes, right? Yeah. And it's just funny because now Depop has been around for like what six years, maybe. But Instagram has become far more technologically advanced in that time, and so mm-hmm. Depop is sort of frozen in time in terms of its functionality. And the concept is. I mean, it's exciting when you think of it in the way of Instagram, where there's so much brand and interpersonal discovery by just, like, you know, recommendations and whatnot and your friends following things and liking things. But, like, for a shopping experience, especially if you're new to it, it's really hard to find things that you like. And then if you're, like, searching, good luck because the search engine for it. I mean, I know search is, like, one of the most challenging things in the world of e-commerce. Like, it's really expensive and no one's has hit the nail on the head yet, but you just don't see what you wanted to see. I, I think I think that Depop is hard in that way, whereas Poshmark, for the most part, if you use filters, you will find what you're looking for. Yes. Well, and in Poshmark, I noticed that, like, you can find it down to the exact brand, item, and size you want. Yeah, um, like, totally. Because, like, as a seller, you're, you usually, like, try to see if other people have sold your items, mm-hmm. and, like, Usually if you just, like, like with, like, something for anthropology, for example, that's, like, pretty mass-produced. And so, for example, for that, like, I have a few skirts from anthropology that I just looked up the brand name and I typed in, like, the color of the skirt. And I was able to see results of that skirt. There's no way you could do that on Depop. And I haven't looked enough on Vinted and Mercari to know if their searches are really any better. I have not shopped on any of them but Poshmark, and actually I think that at some point I should probably buy an item for each platform to kind of experience what it is from a, like, buyer's perspective. Yeah, that's um, a good idea. Like, I have no clue. I have right. no clue how it actually, like, functions as a buyer on any of those sites. What I do know is, like, Mercari is for the people really looking for a deal. Lately, I've been getting back into eBay, and uh, I've noticed a lot of people are, and this is just something interesting to look into, a lot of people are 100% cross-posting like you, like from, I see a lot of stuff that is both on Poshmark and Mercari, but I'm also seeing a lot of stuff that's on Poshmark, Etsy, and or eBay, so like overlap there, like maybe I saw an Etsy and it's on eBay, or like if it's vintage or whatever, and I don't know why, this is something we have to dig into, often the price on eBay is lower. Yes, I've noticed that as well. And it, like, makes me feel a little intrigued about trying my online shop on eBay. But what worries me about eBay, and maybe it's a misconception on my part, 
is like all maybe all these platforms just are marketed better where it feels like a little less DIY, but eBay feels very like real businessy to me. <laughs> um, <laughs> like I guess like I guess it's that like eBay's like advertising feels much less like multi level marketing scheme and it feels very much like small business owner. Yeah, yeah, I could see that. I could see that. And like I haven't sold on there for a really long time, but I recently bought, so I've gotten really into this early 80s designer named Diane Frace. Her dresses are all like these really crazy prints and they have like a lariat tie around the neck and they're like pleated mm-hmm. and they're really interesting and they, she only makes clothes or made clothes in one size, which we know is not really one size. It's still this size right. only fits a few people, but I'm really obsessed with it, and I found this dress on Etsy, and I was like, I don't know. It's, like, 128 I mean, it's worth it. It's, like, you know, a 40-year-old dress, and it's really beautiful, but, you know, I don't have a job, whatever. The same exact dress, it had to have been the same exact seller on eBay was selling it for $80, so I bought it on eBay. And I'm now I'm, like, now I'm, like, seeing it more and more because I'm specifically yep. obsessing over this designer. Well, because I I've been also shopping on eBay more. Um, Interesting. Like, and by more I mean I've made one purchase, but like I've been shopping <laughs> on these resale shops <laughs> for for years. Um, and I was looking at Crocktops on Etsy because I wanted I really like they're the rival Crocktops from like the seventies and eighties that are like cuter I don't know um and I like it because there's stoneware and the stoneware actually looks out so you could actually put the stoneware in the oven and use it that mm-hmm. way mm-hmm. and like modern day crock pots aren't like that and I like I know that I think I would use an instapot but like something about a pressure cooker just like really freaks me out me too um, I use a crock pot the kind with the the stone insert as well I just don't think I'm ready for the, I don't know, the danger of a pressure cooker. <laughs> um, yeah, and and so I was looking at it on Etsy, and on Etsy they were just, like, they were all, like, around, like, $60, and then they were, like, another 50 for shipping, which is, like, totally fine, because, like, I get it. I get mm-hmm. why it's $50 to ship a crock pot. Yeah, they're um, heavy. And so I decided to go and check over on eBay, and all the crock pots on eBay were almost $20 less, and then they were, like, $10 less for shipping. So there just must be something about eBay. And, like, some of these were the same listings. So there just must be something on eBay where they take less of your money. They must. Or they might have, like, they might have a more exact shipping calculator than all these other platforms. I don't know mm, what it true. is. Because I also feel like shipping on eBay, while you're more likely to pay for it yourself, it's like a lower price than on these other resale platforms. I can't even begin to speculate the number of items on eBay at any given day, (laughs) but I think their search function is really, really good. So it's very easy to narrow down to what you want and you can sort it by price high to low or low to high. And that includes the shipping. So you're not seeing things being pushed up because they have free shipping You know what I mean? I think it gives you, as a customer, a more transparent price. I agree. Um, You can sort by newest, you can sort by oldest, all that stuff. And you can make offers on a lot of things. Well, and what's also really interesting about eBay or kind of just in general is there has just been this huge, like, migration of sellers off of Etsy. 
Uh, I mm-hmm. feel like, because, like, I follow so many vintage shops, and I feel like every week I see two of them either move on to eBay or open their own shops, like, online. Mm-hmm. Um, like, I just, like, feel like I've just seen this huge move of, like, vintage sellers off of Etsy. Agreed. Agreed. For a multitude of reasons, but it's, yeah. it's hard to run a business there. I mean, I can't even, especially with vintage, because there's so much on there. Mm-hmm. And their search is also terrible. It's You'll even use filters. You'll filter out children's clothing, and children's clothing is still coming up. Poshmark takes 20%, or they take, I think it's two ninety five for anything less than $15, which is very irksome because it used to be 10 Yeah. And then after 10 after $10, they would take 20%. Um, and so I don't know when that changed. It changed sometime when I was not on it. Um, Mercari takes 10%. Vinted takes 10%, but transparently from the buyer, not from the seller. And then I think Depop also takes 10%, but because they're so not transparent about what they take, I am not positive on that. Um, mm-hmm. I just, yeah, I think that's my biggest peeve right now with Depop is I just feel like they're not transparent about anything. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, that's that is especially concerning because, like you said, like a lot of their sellers are a lot younger, so it feels almost kind of predatory to not be transparent about things, you know? Right. And, like, I, I just, like, I keep wondering, like, what would happen if I accepted an offer that because I can't see, or I guess what happens if I lowered my price and then lowered it into the negative and I didn't know because there's no transparency to it? Right. Right. Um, like, I think that's a huge issue. And, yeah, that does kind of feel predatory because, like, I like I guess it's more that, like, other platforms have proved that this is a very doable function. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so, to me, the fact that, that, that Depop doesn't do it, I find, like, pretty, like, egregious because yeah. Poshmark, Mercari, and Vinted all do it. I mean, Vinted doesn't have to because they take nothing from you. Um, but I, I think that if they did have it, would do it. <laughs> and and so, yeah, I find that just, like, very irksome about Depop because, like, for me, when someone offers a price, I then have to do math. And so I have to take the time to do math. Yeah. Um, and, like, I mean, there's, like, nothing really wrong with doing math. But, yeah, when you're talking about a younger consumer, I, I just, like, I wonder. Um, and I find it concerning. Yeah, me too. Me too. Well, yeah. I'm excited to see how your further research goes and unfolds. So we're going to check back in again. And like you said, you're going to be posting about this regularly on the Clothes Horse blog. So everyone can learn from you. Um, yeah, yeah. I guess we should talk about the blog. Yeah. So I'm, as I think, well, some of you will have met me from the, from the meeting we had to kick off, uh, contributed for a blog, but obviously there were only like 20 to 30 people on that call. So I'm doing all the graphic design and UX design for the site right now. Um, and so I'm really excited about that. And then I'm also, yeah, writing my monthly article about kind of what I'm making across platforms. And so I'll always be fully transparent and give you guys the hard numbers. If I encounter bullying or bad situations for that month, those will appear there. Yeah. Um, if I try eBay, those will appear there. But I'll always be really transparent because, yeah, because, like, the biggest thing that I wish I could find when I, like, was researching these platforms is earnings. Um, and mm-hmm. so I will always have my earnings there, and I always have everything listed on every single platform. So, like, my earnings are, like, very much like a comparative of the platform. Um, and then, yeah, I'll share any, like, strategy changes of different things I've tried for the month and things like that. 
Um, so it should be a super fun article for people who are kind of curious about other platforms or curious about reselling and kind of what you can make, especially like I am just selling from my closet and I'm not selling to make money. So this is kind mm-hmm. of a more like I feel like average American experience as opposed to like a small business owner. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because I'm not hustling. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> You're putting in just enough work to get rid of your stuff. I've been really excited about all the different contributions I've seen so far. Um Me too. The community has like just put some through some really firework and I feel like I did the same thing when I was like, I'm not a writer, like like take it easy on me uh, and everybody everybody who's been doing that like has been like I'm not a writer like all their writing is so good so I think we just like all believe we can't write and we actually can I think so um, too I think so too I think it's like I it's like that Barbie who was like math is hard someone got into all of our heads and was like writing is hard you can't do it because everything I've seen so far is so good I'm so excited about it yeah and I think it really comes from I think you write better when you're passionate about the subject matter. Mm-hmm. And so I think that's what's happening. Because, um, like, I definitely feel like I am not as well written in, like, emails to printers. I don't know. Like, <laughs> uh, like I think it comes from – so I guess what I would also say to anyone listening is if you're feeling like you can't write, just try it. Because, like, everybody who has submitted to the blog so far, I feel like, has prefaced with, like, I can't write. Um, and all of their submissions have been amazing. So, like, if you are one of those people like me who feel like you can't write at all, like, you probably can. And so you should just do it, and you should just kind of, like, take the plunge. And we have a really great process and a really great team to, like, help you through that. Totally. Totally. And I think that is what it is for some people is they're, like, I don't know how to organize my thoughts into writing something, and that's why they feel like they can't write. But sometimes, I mean, I don't know. I just have seen the team doing so much great work to, like, take the time and zoom with the contributor and help them sort of like organize their ideas. And then like what comes in is so amazing. If you have an idea and you're worried that you can't write it down or you think no one will like it, I bet you're wrong about both of those things. And you should just reach out to us. Yeah, I totally agree. Well, thanks for talking to me today, Haley. I mean, I talk to you all the time, but. But Yeah, no, this was super fun. And yeah, I felt like I learned a lot over the last two months and I'm kind of excited to see what happens in the next few months as I'm on all these platforms. By the time you hear this episode, Haley's blog post will be available on closehorse.world with all the full details and numbers. I know you want those hard numbers. And I'll link to that in the show notes too. And Haley will be updating us on all this every month. Also, if your business relies on Depop and you're making it work, I want to hear from you or Maybe you made that migration from Etsy to eBay. Tell us about it. Maybe eBay is just one of your selling platforms and there's a specific reason why. We want to hear all about it. So email me or call the Clothes Horse Hotline. You can find all that info in the show notes. And I just think we need to share our knowledge and wisdom here if we're going to make more of our clothes find a second home slash buy secondhand things for ourselves. So it's, once again, it's secondhand month, and I thought it was important to have a whole month devoted to the topic of reuse and recycling the clothing and objects around us, because I believe that secondhand is the future. Or you could say, there is no future if we don't shop secondhand, which sounds 
pretty intense, right? But it is not hyperbole. And when I say secondhand, I mean giving everything a second life as often as possible, whether as it is right now or by upcycling, modifying it into another item. There's just too much stuff in the world already. We don't need more materials or new things. We've got plenty to work with right now. Even when we just talk about clothing, Americans recycle and donate only 15% of their used clothing. 15%. If you came home from school with a 15% grade on a test and your parents had to sign it, you would be so grounded. (laughs) That is a mega fail, right? 15%. What, what does that mean? Well, it means the remaining 10 and a half million tons of unwanted clothing that Americans dispose of heads to the landfill each year. In fact, according to the Environmental Protection Agency, textiles have the poorest recycling rate of all materials, which is unfortunate because most fabrics and items could be be reworked in one way or another. They could find additional use in one way or another. Even when we dig into that small percentage of clothing that gets donated, that's 15%, right? Less than half of that enjoys a second life with a new wearer. So then we're looking at, okay, of all the clothes we get rid of every year, about 7% of those clothes actually get worn by someone else. But I cannot underscore this enough, the likelihood of that being someone who lives in our community is pretty small. Places like Goodwill and the Salvation Army, really any thrift store, are usually only able to sell about 20% of the total volume donated to their stores. So we're talking about maybe 3% of our unwanted clothing each year is resold in the community And by community, I might not mean your town. I might mean your state or region, depending on where you donated it and how that system works. So what do they do with that 80% of volume that they have left? I mean, that is, wow. This is a grim story, right? Well, they pass it on to for-profit textile recycling companies, and I cannot express this enough. It is a massive industry that has been growing and growing and growing in the last 10, 20 years because we buy so much new clothing that we don't really want, I guess. So what happens there? Well, they buy up all those leftover clothes by the pound and about a quarter of that is sent off to rag houses for sorting. Some of those clothes will be sold off to other thrift stores, which I know doesn't make sense because I just said that The thrift stores are getting more than they can sell, but some thrift stores just aren't getting the volume of donations, the same volume of donations as others, and they need additional inventory. A major chunk of that clothing is going to be shipped overseas, uh, where I'll be talking about that more in our next episode because it's actually really disturbing. It's really upsetting. It's not a happy ending at all, mostly because it's way more clothes than those overseas markets can actually sell. And 
Most of those clothes are incredibly poor quality fast fashion that no one actually wants to buy or wear. In fact, as I say that out loud, I'm like, why did we buy them in the first place if no one actually wants to buy or wear them? What? (laughs) Why did these clothes exist in the first place? Our cast-offs are everyone's cast-offs. If you didn't like it enough to keep it because it fit weird or the fabric was weird or it was just defective, odds are high that no one overseas wants it either. And I think that's something really important to think about, that we feel like we're doing the right thing, that we're being so generous by donating these things that we don't want. But at the core, we didn't want them. Like they weren't good enough for us, but we feel like they're good enough to donate. I mean, I think that's all kinds of weird classism and like white savior nonsense going on there. I can't even, I'm too tired to break it all down right now, but that alone is a really important question to ponder, right? 30% of the clothes we donate are just cut down into industrial rags and another 20% is ground down and reprocessed into things like insulation and stuffing. Another 5% just heads to the landfill anyway because for reasons, unknown reasons, it's just not usable. Maybe it's moldy. That's a big problem. But overall, it's just so much waste. So okay, so let's recap here. There's so much stuff. There's so much clothing in particular, but really it's all stuff. I can't underscore that enough. So Only 15% of all the millions of tons of clothing that we throw out every year are even getting donated, and very little of that is actually ending up on another person's body. What that says to me is we have too much clothing, right? Well, the apparel industry is like, whoa, 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 hold my beer. I'm going to sell you another $2 trillion worth of brand new clothing every year. Yeah, you don't need it, but don't worry. I'll trick you into thinking you need it, and then you'll buy it. And then you'll pass it off to the Goodwill, right? This really, this logic, or lack thereof, applies to just about everything else in our lives. Home goods, appliances, tech devices, craft supplies. There's already such a mountain of perfectly good pre-owned versions of all of these things Yet we're driven to buy more and more brand new stuff. And that happens for a lot of reasons. I mean, one, that, you know, we have been told our entire lives that new is better than used, right? Marketing is confusing. We might think we need the brand new iPhone, even though our current phone is only a year old. We all have someone in our life who gets a new phone every time there's a new phone, right? Also, you know, companies don't make it easy to extend the life of your electronics and whatnot. So it's not all on us either, right? It's like we're in, we're kind of like a hamster running on a wheel and that wheel is, to keep it moving, involves us having to buy stuff. I mean, obviously, this is a very flawed system, right? The issue with opting for new things over the items that already exist isn't just the exponential growth of landfills. It's not just the garbage end of it, right? The trash. It's all the egregious waste of raw materials, water, energy used to create them all. 
And you can't forget the carbon footprint of all this manufacturing and shipping. And on top of that, the carbon footprint of shipping our clothes overseas, of trucking them off to landfills, of even some of these complicated recycling endeavors that use a lot of energy. When you think about how much perfectly good stuff already exists, you have to wonder why someone is wasting their time making new crappy stuff to replace it. Oh, right, because our economy depends on it. So wait, let's just like break that down for a second. Our economy depends on making new crappy stuff way more than we'll ever need, exploiting people and polluting the planet to get the job done. I mean, it seems like this whole capitalism thing, this consumer-driven economy, it might not be the best decision, right? That's, you know, that's another podcast. Uh, I, I love to listen to that podcast, though. But the point here is that more and more stuff is being made every year, way more than we can actually everywhere. And I can't believe I forgot to mention this. We've talked about this in other episodes. On top of that $2 trillion worth of brand new clothing that all of these retailers are selling us every year, there is a ton, I would say roughly, if not more, an additional 30% of that $2 trillion that is never being sold to us, that they're disposing of for various reasons. So the waste is even more extreme, right? Even with all of us only donating 15% of our used clothes to thrift stores, it's still too much volume for the organizations to handle because there just aren't enough customers buying it. If we're going to increase that 15%, we need to get more people shopping for it. Americans now buy five times as much new clothing as they did in 1980. Meanwhile, the systemic infrastructure that these thrift stores have been using to you know, process and manage all those donations, it was developed well before that surge in buying and donating clothing, before we got into this rapid fire cycle of buy, donate, buy, donate, buy, donate. Between 1999 and 2009, the volume of textile trash rose by 40% with, unsurprisingly, continuous and exponential growth since then. Why? What year did I say there? 2009? That was the year after the financial crisis. And we know that that is when fast fashion really took off. So what that says to me is that even between 1999 and 2009, when that textile trash increased by 40%, we were already getting into the habit of buying too much stuff. What happened after 2009 is we got into the habit of buying too much fast fashion, which meant lower quality products that had an even shorter life cycle. Even as so many of us adopt a secondhand first mentality, there just aren't enough of us to keep up with the nonstop cycle of shop and donate, shop and donate that the rest of the population is still practicing. And I also just want to remind you, donating your unwanted clothes does not mean that you can go out and buy a shit ton of new clothes. Like, that's 
that's one of the problems with this whole thing, right? It's much like saying, okay, well, now they can make leggings out of recycled water bottles, so I'll just use twice as many plastic water bottles because it doesn't matter anymore. The problem is fixed. Well, that's not true. And much like much like the plastic bottles, donating all your clothes isn't a pat on the back or a free pass that allows you to go buy a shit ton more of new clothes that you're not going to wear for very long. And I think that is another, I don't know, misconception that we need to get rid of. We need to get that out of here. Let's stigmatize it, okay? This all seems really overwhelming, right? Like what do we do with these millions of tons of unwanted stuff? How do we stop the industry from continuing to make more It seems like it's like too big of a problem that you on a personal level could never, could never fix. You could have no impact on it. And one of my like big missions here at Close Horse, especially this year in 2021, is that at the end of each episode, when you finish, when you've heard me say thank you to Dustin Travis White for our music and audio support, that you will at that moment feel very empowered about the impact that you as an individual can make. So what's the solution here? How do we as individuals fix this situation? Well, first, we have to slow down the pace at which we buy new stuff and pass it on to the thrift store. You know, the average garment is only being worn seven times before it moves off to the thrift store or the landfill. And this goes back to the idea of outfit repeating, which makes sense to most of us. It is still not a common practice. It is still stigmatized to wear the same outfit over and over on Instagram. We need to change that behavior. And it starts with us leading by example. It also means that we need to be more thoughtful about the new things we buy. Because yes, we are going to need to buy new things. It would be wildly unrealistic that for the rest of our lives, we're only going to buy secondhand things because that just isn't always possible for a variety of reasons. Sometimes you just don't have access to it. Sometimes that item doesn't exist secondhand. You know, there's a, there are tons of reasons why. But when we buy brand new things, we're going to be really thoughtful about it. And that means cutting back on impulse purchases, which I've told you all before, has been a struggle for me in the past. If I was at work and I'm having a bad day, I'm going to get my salad and sit down and buy something from Zara and feel better for like five seconds. Changing that behavior for myself, getting rid of those impulse purchases to cheer myself up has been a challenge, but it's been really good for me. So for example, you know, I have really tried to say like, what are the things that make me feel good in that way when I'm having a bad time, when I need to just chill out for a second, when I'm stressing out about if I'm ever going to get my unemployment, you know, that kind of thing. You know, and I, I, I have found things that fill that void that actually make me happier than buying something on Zara ever could. You know, like I have all these bird feeders in the yard. I love to care for the animals in the yard and watch them. We have stray cats. You know, I sometimes I just like to sit down and have some quality time with Brenda, you know, Maybe I'll just go have a nice conversation with Dustin. I'll look at something beautiful in a book or on the internet. And I didn't have access to these like simpler types of joys in my old life. I just don't think they I knew they existed. I think it's helped me so much on an emotional and spiritual level that 
I can't imagine going back to just buying something at Zara because I'm having a bad day. So I guess that's my advice on that one. I would love to hear your thoughts on that and how you prevent yourself from making impulse purchases, cheer up gifts, retail therapy, if you will. You know, second, we have to shift much more of our spending into secondhand. And this means really thinking secondhand first when we need something. But more importantly, because our community isn't that big, we need to encourage other people to adopt that mentality too, which, you know, is not easy for everyone. You know, some of us love to thrift. Some of us were practically born in the thrift store. Others have never done it, you know, maybe because it's intimidating. They pulled up and walked in once and didn't know where to begin. It is one of those things you kind of learn by doing, by practice, right? For others, thrifting and secondhand, it's been stigmatized, you know, from a classist perspective. Like, even when I was growing up, secondhand clothes, only poor people wore those. Fortunately, I was a poor person, so it was kind of like whatever, but... I would go to school and kids would make fun of me for that. Now, I say that out loud now, right? The idea that wearing secondhand is embarrassing, if that's how you feel, I think that you're just really saying like, dude, I am so into capitalism. (laughs) I'm so into this consumer-driven economy. I mean, it's like so silly that this is programmed into us. But once again, we're the hamsters on the wheel. The wheel turns when we buy stuff, right? That's where we are right now. Let's be realistic. A lot of people don't have the time or access to thrift stores, you know, depending on where they live. They might be very busy, you know, caring for their families, uh, working. They may have health problems that specifically during the pandemic prevent them from getting out. It's really ableist of us to assume that everybody can just get out there and thrift. That's why I think it's really important to create more online platforms to make it easier for others to buy secondhand. We need to make secondhand second nature by making it easy and convenient. And this is a great transition into my conversation with Jennifer, who's working on starting a more socially responsible secondhand selling platform. While it's been great that apps like Poshmark are super popular, they are highly profitable corporations focusing on growth, which often means that sellers and the community get the short end of the stick. Their selling fees have increased over time, and they've been starting new partnerships with brands like Free People, allowing them to sell brand new product at low, low prices on the site, which, you know what that does? It shuts out legitimate secondhand sellers because they can't compete. In fact, I'll tell you, there's a lot of brand new stuff on Poshmark. Poshmark isn't really a secondhand site. It's a resale site. So these people are getting you know, brand new stuff from other places and reselling it there. Poshmark is not on an eco mission. It's on a profit mission. So it's not exactly what we want. We'll take it for now. But I'm excited about Jennifer's mission. So let's take a listen. So why don't you introduce yourself? Yeah, sure. My name is Jennifer. And um, I have been on a journey to sustainable fashion um, for over a decade now. Uh, I I went to New York in university to like be an actress. I was sure I was going to be on Broadway. Um, <laughs> and then I, <laughs> and then I started. Um, I got a job in the fashion industry as a day job, weirdly enough. 
um, wow. working for this, I know, unusual day job. Yeah. Um, but uh, my husband was working, like, in the restaurant business at the time and walked into this designer studio. Her name is Lucy Barnes, and she's this incredible designer who was, like, one of the first people in the meatpacking district in New York. Her now ex-husband was, like, one of the first gallerists there. And she just had, like, this full-floor loft in the meatpacking district before it was that. And they just made these, like, incredibly detailed, beautifully put-together garments. Um, And my husband walked in there to, like, cater a baby shower or something, and he was like, whoa, Jennifer needs to be here (laughs) because I I like making stuff. Um, And so he just recognized it as, you know, my potential home. And, uh, And luckily she welcomed me into her team. And so I kind of, like, accidentally got this, start in in the fashion industry and it that day job kind of snowballed and took over my life um and I went from being her intern like the first week this is sort of my introduction to what it takes to actually make clothing like I was a maker growing up we were really crafty but I never like sewed that much and that that first week that I worked for Lucy I was hand setting rhinestones in these gorgeous belts that were bound for Barney's but it took me like a week <laughs> to hand set rhinestones in I think 20 or 25 belts and I was just the final step of this process you know so I was like wow this takes a lot of time and even if these belts are going to be sold for you know five or six hundred dollars how does any of this make sense and um and I think that was probably the first time that I questioned the fashion industry <laughs> Um, and that was in 2001 and I continued to work in it for a while I ended up with my own boutique um, in South Beach where I only sold independent designers Um, and then um, you know I did like a few different things but I was always in the sort of indie side of the business when Mm -hmm. I went from Miami back to New York I thought I was going to get a job like in vertical retail like in the mainstream fashion industry and uh and I was I was very good at interviewing because I, I was trained as an actress, you know, so I can be yeah. like, I walk into a room and I'll be like, who do you want me to be? I can be her. That makes um, sense. That totally, that gives so, you definitely like an advantage there. You would think. So, but what happened was I kept bombing these interviews <laughs> and I was like, well, I'm not accustomed to this. Like what happened? And I sort of like had a realization that I was like, oh, I don't want to work in this side of the industry. Um, and, uh, <laughs> so I didn't, but this sort of like all of these things stacked up on top of each other, um, really like made me wonder what was happening in the industry. And, and I think that the transition was really in its infancy at that point, you know, this is in sort of the early aughts and vertical, like even when I had my boutique and I was like competing with these other, you know, big box retailers, at that point, they were still only getting, like, I don't know, maybe 20 drops of new inventory every season. And now, oh. like, 50 drops of new yeah, inventory, it's you know? Ridiculous. It's bonkers. It's just utterly bonkers. Um, but those, even, like, seeing that in the beginning and seeing this very real contrast of, like, um, like, what we were making in Lucy's studio and trying like how much time and energy went into making these garments and they were naturally very expensive but then you know seeing things that were different but not like a world of difference you know that are on sale in in Bloomingdale's for far less and you're like there's a big disconnect here Mm -hmm. um so 
so I, I was also involved in sort of the early days of Etsy when they had these things called, I think they were called street teams and they were like these local communities of makers. And the one in New York was super active because Etsy was also headquartered in New York or is also headquartered in New York. And um, through my involvement there, somebody got me into this. They called it the wardrobe refashion challenge. And for six months, first time I'd ever done anything like this, for six months I committed to not buy anything unless it was vintage, thrift, or handmade. And that really changed my life. (laughs) Yeah, Um, I bet. Yeah, I had already been shopping for vintage in thrift stores, so it was very natural for me to turn to that. Mm -hmm. Um, But this was now, I was like, okay, what if I actually look at the things that are hanging in between the 50s lace dresses and 70s polyester prints that I'm naturally drawn to? Like, what's happening between these vintage things on the rack? And that's when I sort of realized that there was just this huge, even back then, and this was 2009, there was a, you know, unlimited practically number of almost unworn clothes from all of the brands that I had been buying from in the mall anyway. Mm -hmm. And so at that moment, I was just like, what are, I mean, I was primed already to be like, what are we doing? (laughs) (laughs) But, but when I had this experience for those six months of like only shopping thrift and not feeling like I was limited in any way, in the number, you know, of things that I could buy or in the quality of things that I could buy, I was like, well, there's a lot of value here. We need to get more of this into the closets of women who would love and use it still. And so I started this, like, in earnest, kind of started my journey of figuring out how to actually do that. You know, I think about you noticing that in 2009, and it's sort of like, well, that was just the beginning, Exactly. Uh, how I mean, it's just exponentially year over year over year. And, you know, I think I'm excited that secondhand, that like middle ground between vintage and brand new clothes, that like area that you're talking about is now, you know, it's it's picking up momentum and becoming like, I don't know, it's not like I want to say socially acceptable, but it's becoming like more desirable and normalized because yeah. for a long time. those clothes were stigmatized. You know what I mean? Like Mm -hmm. people could still say, they could say, okay, yeah, vintage clothes are used, but they're special. Right. But like, what about all the gap clothes? They're old Navy or, you know, what have you that you would see at the thrift store? Like, I mean, this would include even me. I wasn't looking at that stuff. I was passing by it as fast as possible. Exactly. And, (laughs) It's exciting that now we're like, oh, yeah, those clothes still have value because, I mean, they, they're they barely worn. It's like that's the thing, right? This is the way the – and I saw this so clearly when I had my store is the business model of all of these vertical retailers or mainstream retailers. You know, they're, they're producing such high volumes of things. They mm-hmm. put it into the store at, let's say, whatever, $60, you know, and it stays at that price for like one minute. <laughs> it's true then, approximately <laughs> and then they just cut it like just cut it cut it cut it until people are buying stuff because it's $12 instead of 60 not mm-hmm. because they actually love it so of course that ends up in our closet we don't know what to do with it we never really liked it that much anyway it never gets worn and then at the end of the year you're like oh I've got to clean out my closet I should you know like what am I going to do with all this stuff like it's no surprise that that there's so much given that 
model of retailing, it's no surprise that there's so much that's available that really is showing almost nowhere at all. Yeah, and it's it's interesting because, you know, we have seen that pick up so much momentum in the last, like, 10-plus years, this idea of, mm-hmm. like, everything gets bought on sale. But I've mm-hmm. been in so many meetings over that decade where, you know, there's a lot of fretting about how no one wants to buy full-price stuff, and it's all our fault for, you know, marking stuff down. And I would argue that there are plenty of people out there buying full-price clothes, even as we're talking right now, and that is because those clothes seem special, have value, you know, are worth spending the full $60 or Mm -hmm. what have you. And what I think is really happening that no one wants to say out loud or, you know, admit is that these clothes that they're making tens of thousands of units of, they're just like not that great. I mean, because whether you bought it for $60 or 12, if it's great, you're going to wear it for a long time. And that's just not happening because people are buying it because they're like, oh, what a deal. They're taking it home. And then they're like, wah, wah. Well, if if you feel that way when you spend $12 on it, imagine how you would feel if you had spent 60, you know? And I feel like it's, it's just, depressing, you know, and enraging. It's all the negative feelings in one. (laughs) And it's like, can we just get off this train, you know? Yeah, totally, totally. I mean, I think, too, there's, like, there's a component of it that's also, like, we live in a capitalist society where we, I think, at this point, a lot of people are very, very detached from their own feelings or ideas about what is great and what is meh, right? Mm-hmm. So I think that that comes into play too, right? Because, yes, I totally agree that the quality of clothing, you know, has definitely gone downhill. Um, but also, too, there's just there's so many options that if you're not – like, I have a very strong opinion usually about what I'm going to like or not like. That is <laughs> part of, I think, why it was very easy for me to go into a thrift store and shift to shopping there because I can look at a mile's worth of rack of clothes and be able to pick out the five things that are really going to suit me. But totally. a lot of people don't have that strong of an opinion about their clothes, and so they get, like, you know, they get – put into these rivers of consumption by sort of the model that we live in. And then they feel dissatisfied, not only because the clothes are kind of meh, but maybe because the clothes, that, that piece of clothes was never right for them to begin with. Yeah. Yeah. So it's such a like layered and nuanced problem, which is can be overwhelming or it can also be exciting because it means there's a, we can come at it from a lot of different angles to try and fix it. Yeah. Yeah. And <laughs> I Pollyanna. Think- yeah, I mean, no, I mean, I think, I think it is like a multifaceted problem to fix. And on our end, it's about really, you know, digging deep within ourselves and figuring out what it is that we want to wear and what's important to us, right? Like, I'm the mm-hmm. same as you. I can go to a thrift store. I can get it out really fast. I can sit through it all and know what I want, you know, pretty fast. But you're right. For a lot of people, they don't, they don't know exactly what it is that they want to wear. And so they can be easily targeted by these brands that are sort of like, here's some clothes there. They'll obscure your nudity. You know, like you might not be happy <laughs> oh with gosh. them. They're $12. <laughs> so just take them. And I think that is part of it. It's like, 
really digging deep into ourselves and figuring out like what's important to us, what we want to wear, who we are, you know, we but should, also we, we should all just make that our mantra. What you just said there, don't just buy clothes to obscure your nudity. <laughs> <laughs> when you pick something up off a rack, we can all just think, am I just buying this to obscure my nudity or do I love it? Exactly, exactly. I mean, I, I put myself to that test all the time. And when I'm thrifting with my husband, even I'm like, okay, you picked that up because it was, you know, X, Y, Z, but is that, do you love it? Are you going to wear it all the time? You know, like you Mm -hmm. have to ask yourself that. Are you going to wear it for more than just this vacation you're going on or for that one wedding? And, you know, is it really, is it really what you were looking for? Because I think also it's hard to find stuff that you like, especially if you go hit them all, you know, and you have Mm -hmm. like a really, unless you are really, like whatever the major trend of that moment is like really appeals to you, you know, a trip to the mall can be really disappointing and you sort of are like, but I'm here to buy something. I guess I'll just buy something. And you end up taking yeah. something that you don't like. You don't love. But I also am just like, you know, maybe if, I mean, I have so many thoughts of this, but like if we could shift our spending into secondhand and small businesses, then those larger mall brands would, they would be forced to, do something different. Yeah. I mean, I I feel like it will take them a long time to figure that out. I feel like the mall will just be empty before that happens. But <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm really interested to see how it all unfolds and like what what is the fashion industry of ten years from now? You know, like what yeah. that like I'm really curious about about that. I mean, I think we are in this prime moment where we can change what's next. You know, we can dictate yeah. what's going to happen next rather than continuing along with the status quo. I mean, we've seen everybody struggling to just sell us sweatpants for the past year. And <laughs> I think it's, it could be like a major reset moment to just shift the way we value clothes and what they mean to us and how many we yeah. have. Absolutely. Absolutely. For sure. That's, it's funny, you know, like after I had my, aha moment about, um, you know, how much value there is in the thrift shop. Um, and I started trying to convert everybody that I could <laughs> to that <laughs> to that process. It did not go well at first, you know, like I was trying to drag my friends to the thrift stores with me and the vast majority of them were like, no, thanks. Um, so then I was like, oh, well, what if, okay, let me try this other model where I, I started noticing what I, for like my friends and family, I would pull things from the thrift shop for them and then be like, here, why don't you take some of this, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and they liked that. So I was like, oh, what if, what if I did this in a bigger way? Um, and I started doing like, I don't know, I called it style coaching. Cause I think when I hear the word stylist, I think like someone else is telling me how to dress and I didn't want to do that, but I'm really interested in this dance between um, confidence, elevating, authentic, like self-driven style and how that impacts women Mm -hmm. and how you can make it easier for women to fulfill that, like to get more of that style in their world, but with like staying within alignment, values alignment, right? So I started doing this personal style coaching, and and the first thing I always did was help to narrow their closet down just to pieces that they love. Because if you start your day every day and you're looking in your closet and you're like, meh, eh, no, too tight, don't like that, you know, like if it's just Uh, all no's, then that's, sets up your tone for the day. 
So start with a closet that's a lot of yeses, all yeses, ideally. Um, And then I would go out and I'd thrift shop for them and I'd send them collections like four or five, three or four times a year where it would be like 15 or 20 pieces that I bought just for them and they could shop from that. And that worked really well. So I was like, okay, this is great. So women are definitely into secondhand if it can be really easy. Mm-hmm. Now, how do we make it easy? Because I didn't really want to be a um, personal stylist. You know, I wanted to change consumer habits on a much bigger scale. Um, and so that's kind of how I landed, you know, on this idea of, like, how could we make a marketplace that really answers buyers' needs and, and makes it super easy for consumers, not just people who are already thinking about secondhand because of, because they already know they want to opt out of fast fashion. But like, mm-hmm. how do we make it so good and so easy that even someone who doesn't know that she wants out of fast fashion is like, oh, this is actually so much better than mainstream retail. Um, so I'm really excited about this being in this moment, like you're talking about where we can really change and do something totally different. Yeah. I mean, I think it's yeah. really exciting. What you're doing is so smart because like, if you're not, I don't want to say a professional thrift shopper, but everyone who's listening. If you're a a digger (laughs) and a picker. Like if you are in it for the treasure hunt, it works fine. And there are plenty of us out there who are like that. But the vast majority of people don't have that experience or that love of digging around, right? Or frankly, may not have the time. Like like it's a privilege (laughs) to be able to be like, I'm going to take a few hours out of this. Saturday afternoon and I'm going to go, you know, spend this time thrifting. Like, absolutely. You know, I mean, if you've ever had to go thrifting with a toddler. (laughs) Yes, I have. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) You know, that being able to go thrift and like really dig in there is such a privilege. Uh, It's just, you know, it takes time and focus that a lot of people don't have, you know, and now during the pandemic, it also means like, you know, you may be putting yourself at risk just by being out around other people. So, when listeners are like, well, why doesn't everybody thrift? What's their problem? I'm kind of like, well, it's sort of like you're a natural born thrifter or you're not. And you can learn how to thrift and learn to love it and see how magical it is. But the person who's never gone thrifting before, isn't going to walk into the Goodwill tomorrow and like have a successful time. Have that experience. Yeah. Yeah. You're like a gateway person. It's interesting. I was talking to a woman this morning. I do like on, on Saturday mornings on my Instagram, I do like a, I call it style crush. And I just chat with someone who has amazing style that I love, who is primarily um, secondhand first. Um, Mm -hmm. And she was saying she was not, she like tried to go thrifting sometime in high school or something. And she was like, full stop. No. But then she got a friend who walked, not just walked her into the thrift store, but pulled things for her. Uh, and yes. then she, like, got that experience of, like, oh, my, oh, man, there is really good stuff there. And then, like, slowly through the course of time, it was something that she sort of now loves. But it was paired also with watching True Cost and, you know, becoming a lot more aware of, mm-hmm. of mm-hmm. what who really is paying for these cheap clothes that we wear. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, I think everybody comes to it in a different way, but it's exciting when someone gets there. I love that idea of everyone taking on one friend as their, like, thrift apprentice and taking them there and teaching them. You know, I think that's such an amazing idea. I can't wait until the world is, you know, open again and we can all, we can all nominate one friend to be our, 
our first apprentice. <laughs> yes, yes. I'm trying to do it like virtually right now. It's mm-hmm. funny. I've never, I hate online thrifting. The idea that I'm making like an online secondhand marketplace is kind of comical because I hate thrifting online. I, until like this spring, I've never bought anything on Poshmark or ThreadUp, you know, like I didn't even like using them. Kind of the central idea of my marketplace is rather than trying to like get people to come to a random, you know, space to look for one item or to like try and browse, which is utterly impossible on these platforms. Oh, it's terrible. Don't get me started with ThreadUp, especially. Yeah. (laughs) It's the worst. So I started thinking, like, how do we make this easy, right? Like, the same thing with my my styling clients. Like, what if you could just pick an outfit that you liked and then you could know, like, you could be fed super specific um, currently available items to recreate that same outfit for yourself in your size and your budget Um, so that instead of having to shop for things, you actually get to come and just browse style inspiration, um, mm-hmm. So that's that's kind of the central idea, but obviously, like to build that is a big, expensive tech solution. Um, so first, I just started doing it manually, um, and and that's what it like. People come into my community and they're like, "Hey, I like this outfit. You know, could I could I do this secondhand?" And then I go and I and I find them like, "Sure, here's the blouse, and here's the cape, and here's the trousers, and here's some shoes. You could buy any of these, you know." Yeah, um, yeah. And so it is kind of like that same thing. Like, I can't take that friend into the thrift store right now because um, we're pretty much staying put. Um, but it, it is sort of that experience of, like, see, you actually can. You can. The stuff is out there. Mm-hmm. Like, mm-hmm. that's what the – I think there's no there's no more place to be able to say, like, oh, I can't find what I want, need, like, whatever in the secondhand market. Because it's out there. Now, do I have the time, energy, interest, knowledge to find it? That's, those are all fair questions, but those are mm-hmm. questions that are easier to solve with technology. Yeah, totally. So, and I think, I think that is the ticket right there because we have found shopping to get easier and easier for brand new stuff, you know, yeah, so yeah. like the Amazonification of the world, yeah. right? And yes. so, I mean, you know, Amazon is a super powerful search engine. You really can find anything you want on there that's brand new and have it shipped to your house very, very fast. And unfortunately, what that has done is set this precedent that all shopping should be that should easy. Be that. Yeah. So no one has gotten there yet with the secondhand market. Like, thread up. Oh, I yeah, like not have only. Close. Yeah, I've only bought stuff from ThreadUp one time because I just, like, cannot deal with that website. It is, is, it's so funny. I cannot put my finger on what it is about ThreadUp that doesn't work for me. I always, in my searches for my community, I always default to Poshmark. And I think it might be because there's also a lot of junk on Poshmark, so that's not perfect either. But I think it might be the uniformity of the ThreadUp website. Just, like, I can't see things on it at least in Poshmark there's like like a once in a while a really good photo will like pop out of the yes feed yes and that's true my attention <laughs> I also feel like you can you can get better results like you can more specifically search on Poshmark yeah. whereas if I went on to thread up and searched like prairie dress 
size medium, I'm going to get all kinds of goobly gop that has nothing to do with any of that. And even when yeah. I've tried to use filters on ThreadUp, I still can't get to what I want. And I know they're processing like a gazillion styles every yeah. day. So this is not yeah. like I'm not attacking them or anything, but like often the measurements are wrong too. So yeah. it's like really, really hard to shop. Whereas at least on Poshmark, you can, if you take the time, get to what you're looking for. You know what I mean? Yeah. Because a lot of people list specific brand names, style names. You can filter by size, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, maybe that's actually a really good point, too, because I think just because of the way the thread up um, processing works, the, there aren't as reliably, like, you, it's not as reliable that you find keyword-related yes. answers. Yes. Where Poshmark, at least, you do. I mean, I honestly hate keywords for trying to search for secondhand clothes because I mean, just to take an example, like if I go and I am very clearly, I want to get a midi skirt and I put <laughs> midi skirt, apparently everybody's definition of what a midi skirt is, is very different. I have experienced <laughs> um, this same problem with crazy. midi dress. Yeah, <laughs> it makes me crazy. But like going back to Fred up, I have tried to filter by midi dress and I have gotten mostly mini. So yeah, yeah, so I think that is like the dragon that everybody needs to slay. Unfortunately, yes, it's unfair that we all have to walk the road of Amazon in terms of like functionality, but mm -hmm. that is just where we are right now. And I don't think there's any turning back. And also, you know, it's fair as a customer to expect to be able to find the things you want to buy. Absolutely. I think that that's really key, you know, like just – I mean, I could go on a whole tangent here about uh, the, the way that we live our lives and particularly women and everything that we're taking on <laughs> with our careers and our, mm -hmm. you know, caretaking, whether that means of our children or of our parents or of our friends or, you know, like we kind of mother the world um, and all of the standards that we're holding ourselves to, like something has got to be easy. Something has got to be easy, and none of that other stuff is especially easy. And so I think that these spaces should – look, you know, I'm sorry, but if the founder of Poshmark can now be holding $600 million worth of stock, they yes. should be able to build a better platform that oh. makes it easier to be a consumer on their platform and makes it easier for their sellers to sell. You know, yeah. like these are the people that are making that value. And it it really, like, makes me pretty salty. <laughs> oh, gosh, I agree. I agree. I feel like, like, ThreadUp is so focused on all these, like, partnerships and stuff with, like, Nordstrom and whatnot. And I'm yeah. like, guys, could you just please, just please pull some of the people who work on that over to making your site more useful? Because, yeah. you know, I love the mm. concept of it, you know? <laughs> I mean, look, I hate to say it, but I think that the – the reality there is that that those things like I can track Poshmark's features exactly along a trajectory of like benchmarks to get to an IPO. Like the way Poshmark does its business, the way that ThreadUp is doing its business has, in my opinion, a lot more to do with meeting VC model goals as it does creating a super functional user-friendly product. Oh, and 100%. that also pisses me off. Me too. Me too. Like I listen, I have worked for primarily startups in my career and 
at every situation, our focus was less like delivering quality product to our customers and more about meeting the metrics that would mm-hmm. bring in more VC. Like more that money. is what we really wanted. Yeah, yeah. It wasn't like, oh, we we hope that customers love the product and are happy and want to come back. No, it was like yeah. we need to push for exponential growth quarter exactly. over quarter over quarter over quarter. Exactly. And the wreckage that left is left behind is irrelevant. So we'll just deal with that. We'll fix it later. Like yes. there's, there's like this we'll sort of and maybe you know, who knows? Maybe now that it's done, Poshmark will start fixing some of these things. I hope they don't because that's going to make my business less relevant. <laughs> I just also, um, I would say, like, you know, I, I and I don't want to be, like, negative here, but I'm not sure that they can at this point without having a massive service disruption. You know yeah, what I mean? Like, I, I think it's too bad that they didn't think of this from the beginning, but you that puts you in an amazing position where you can build it from the ground up. Yeah. Can I can I tell you my VC story? Yeah, please. please. <laughs> it's not it's not technically a real VC story. It's like a pre VC story. I um I've worked in startups as well, so I like know the thing that you're talking about and I've watched a lot of people close to me with very smart ideas try and get funding and just n- never be able to. <sighs> especially um, if you're a woman, it is really really hard. Yeah. Exactly. But because what I want to build is a tech solution and it's expensive, um you know, I sort of thought I was thinking along the lines of like, okay, I I'm gonna have to do this, and it just so happens that there's somebody in my life who, at the moment, is a darling of the VC world. He's like launched a business that's done tremendously well this year, and he's gone from like seed to Series A like since COVID started because he's wow so much. It's amazing. Super smart guy. Don't want to take anything away from what he's doing, but he's someone who's close to me. And so he took an interest in my project because it's very scalable. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's well positioned for VC money in that regard. And he's like, okay, let's, you know, let's do this. I'm going to help you. I'm going to help you. Let's get you funded. I'm like, okay, great. So I like make my deck and I write my pitch and I run it by him as a practice. And um, he didn't get all of it because this is very much not his space, right? But his mm-hmm. key takeaway felt like, we just need to clarify a few things. Like, we just need to tighten it up a bit, a couple of revisions, and I think you'll be ready to take this out, right? Which was amazing feedback. Yeah. And I hung up the phone, and I burst into tears. Like, uncontrollable, ugly crying for 45 minutes. <laughs> my husband walked in, and he was like, oh, my God, what happened? Are you okay? I was like, hey, I was a good idea. He thinks it's almost ready. You know, and he's like, uh, Okay. Um, so I had to do like some soul searching to figure out what that was about. Um, and I just realized like, look, the whole reason that I don't want to participate in in fast fashion is because it is an extractive model of business that takes advantage of the people who are doing the work and Mm -hmm. where the profits disproportionately benefit the people at the top. Right. Well, you could basically say the same exact things about the VC world. Now, not always, and of course, there's, like, impact venture now is obviously, like, a thing, but ultimately, like, I want to build a community of buyers who care about this stuff and resellers who want to find the things for them. Those are the people who are doing the work of making this successful. So, I don't want the profits to flow away from those people and into the pockets of venture capitalists. I want the profits to flow back into the community. Right, Um, right. And so it was like, 
it was a, you know, when I finally got a little bit of distance and my headache went away and my eyes cleared, um, it was actually a great experience because I just so viscerally realized in that moment that I don't want to go that path. And, um, and I've kind of figured out, I had, I had thought a long time ago about building this as a co-op. Um, and then I got a little worried because, you know, the way that politically speaking things have gone in this country in the last five years, I was like, can a whole bunch of people really be relied on to make good decisions? I don't know. Um, but, but this has brought me back around to it and I'm actually so excited to be able to like take that approach. Um, you know, and create something that's like a community project. It's community developed and community funded. And, and the, the community of people who really are impacted by this stuff are the people who are going to, you know, really get to have an active voice in, in what we build and how it functions. I mean, I, I love that. I have seen how venture capital can ruin a business. Uh, mm-hmm. over and over again. <laughs> so it's frustrating because that is, for a lot of people, especially if you want to start a tech business, that's the path you're expected to go down, right? And yeah. it just, especially, man, I mean, let me tell you, I have had some really horrendous pitch meetings with <laughs> all male VC groups, oh. and uh, it has really sh- shaken me, <laughs> for sure. Yeah. <laughs> it was, you know, like, and here I was in this, like, call with someone that I trust that I'm close to that I know like has my best interest in mind and I still felt like I don't know it just felt like the whole setup felt I mean honestly like I don't want to use this word lightly but it felt sort of violating it felt like I'm I'm setting up to answer mostly men about why they should give me more than 10 minutes of their time to Mm -hmm. prove to them that I can make them millions of dollars. 100%. I mean, that's a great description. It's so gross. Yeah, it it totally totally is. And I think, you know, yes, to a certain extent, these investors care about your business, but only in terms of, like, what it looks like on a balance sheet, what is the return for them. And, like, of course – like you said, there are exceptions. There are people who are really yeah. focused on, you know, more socially impactful investments. But and there's more and more women coming into the space, which is amazing. Like, I love all of these totally you know, women-founded firms. Totally, you know, totally. So there's change happening. But, but it is, by and large, it is, like, less about the mission of your actual business and more about the numbers they're going to see out of it. And I think that is where brands can lose their way yeah. you know like you if you can lose your vision kind of like because you have to you have to sacrifice it to please your investors so I mean I'm excited that you are thinking about it in a different way yeah I'm excited I just and as now that I've like sort of dived into this world of co-ops I think that it's also becoming something that more people are thinking about I think it's a you know there's like a lot of conversations happening. All these baby boomers have businesses that are up and running that their kids don't want to take over. And so there's a lot of like work also in the co-op space of like helping um, have employees buy out businesses like this from their, you know, from their founders who want to retire. Um, I think it's a, it can be a really good model. Yeah. I mean, I think that's I'm so excited cool. about it. So why don't you explain for the non-business nerds, uh, (laughs) 
<laughs> what it means to have a co-op model. Yeah, well, it, the interesting thing is it can kind of mean a lot of different things. Anything from, like, the biggest consumer co-op is REI. Mm-hmm. Um, they run theirs a bit more like a rebate program, I would say. I think at this point you pay $20 one time to become a member. And then with that membership share, you have the right to vote on their board of directors. And then the board of directors kind of oversees the business large scale. And then they have like a more normal corporate structure under that um, that interacts with the board of directors. So that kind of looks very similar to like what a public corporation would look like where you have your shareholders and your board and then the sort of C-suite and the people who are running um, the co-op. So it could look like that, um, or it could look like, um, you know, something much more hands-on if you think of sort of local, there's a lot of local, like, organic health food store co-ops where um, the members maybe have more input into what the store carries and what they want to see there. And the, the idea is that you also kind of, like, create a collective buying power so you can get better prices on things. Um, what I what I want to build is somewhere in the middle. Um, I think that we'll see as it grows. Like, there's not a lot of um, platform-based businesses that are exist on the scale of what I'm envisioning um, that are co-ops. So that's kind of going to be like we're forging a new path a bit, but that's exciting. Mm-hmm. The new school has a whole – um, like lab or I don't know exactly what they call it, but a whole like group of people who are looking at platform co-ops and how to make that um, more accessible when you're dealing with um, people from across the U.S. or even in other countries. Um, but the idea is you have um, different classes of members and people will pay a fee to be a, a member um, and then in proportion to the business that they do with the company on an annual basis, when there's profits, the profits get redistributed back to the members. They call Mm -hmm. it patronage. And the idea is essentially that instead of being um, getting money back in proportion to the amount of money that you put in, um, you get money back in proportion to the amount of um, transactions that you have with the company. Um, and then, and then you sort of, as a co-op, you get to decide how your members get to have their voices heard. The sort of idea of one member, one vote is very central to the co-op model. Um, we are still in the process of figuring out, like, in terms of day-to-day management, like, how do we honor that? Because that's actually super important to me. Um, and also, like, make sure that the business has the ability to function in the ways that will be most profitable for its members and most beneficial for its members, which, um, you know, an individual member on the ground might not have the, the full perspective of what that looks like. So we're, we're, we're in the early stages. Basically, you put together a steering committee of people who um, loosely define the structure and how these things will broadly work, and then you start to bring on members and and, uh, you know, and put it into action and sort of tweak it as you go. That's so exciting. I am so excited about it. Thank you. It's so, it's so like, it's nice. It just feels so right. You know, like those, those moments where you're like, oh, this other thing felt like something that I really had to do. 
and now this just feels like something I'm so excited to bring into the world. I mean, I think it's it's what we need right now because secondhand is the future, but right now the major players in secondhand are they're just not good. You know, they're not places yeah. you really want to give their money your money to. Like I feel I've been talking to a lot of people about Poshmark and they feel like selling on there, you know, the fees are really high. There's a lot of sort of semi unethical yeah. things going on there. I have been <laughs> it's a trying bit of wild west. To, yeah, it is I just love the idea of taking this really important service, but then backing it up with all of the like ethics and mission, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And I'm also super interested. I mean, we could have a whole other conversation on this alone, but there's like, like I engage with the secondhand market from a pre like from like a consumer standpoint. And then there's like the post consumer secondhand market, which is a whole world in and of itself. Um, and I'm really, I've been, you know, paying a lot of attention to, there's a lot of conversation about like the gentrification of thrift stores and how resellers are or aren't playing a part in that. Um, and I don't think there's a lot of clear answers about it, but, um, you know, and then there's like where our clothes go even after the thrift stores and the sort of tsunamis of, um, secondhand that we're sending, you know, to Ghana in particular and, and the, um, huge market that's there like there's it's just there's so much there to if you bring mindful attention to it there's so much there to like make impact with um yeah I'm, it's, I'm super excited yeah I mean the gentrification of thrift thing is so interesting and I think about that all the time it's definitely something People reach out to me to ask my opinion on a lot. And in order to fully utilize the billions and billions of garments that are floating around the planet right now, everyone, or at least most people, are going to have to start wearing secondhand. And so if that's what gentrification of secondhand is, I guess so be it. Because I would rather see tons and tons of people who never bought secondhand before making that their primary means of shopping, then all that stuff goes sit in a landfill. And right. Or that, end up in like in, in incinerated in open landfills in Ghana where, or like solidified on the beaches because they've just been dumped. Cause there's like, that's it. That's the end of the road and there's nothing else to do with them. Yes. It's a, I'm, I'm, you know what? I'm super curious about this conversation. And if anybody happens to be listening to this, and has an opinion, I would love to know, <laughs> hit me up. I'm really curious if the people who, like, because the primary argument seems to be that thrift stores themselves are becoming um, unacceptably expensive and that there's not things left in them for people who actually need to purchase things at that price point because that's all they can afford. And I'm very curious if the people who hold that opinion are people, if that's their opinion based on an ideology or if that's their opinion based on personal experience? Because, um, I mean, I know I've been going into thrift stores for 25 years, kind of all over the country in all kinds of different neighborhoods. And I can't say I've ever, like, I can think of maybe one time where I went into a thrift store where I was like, oh, there's nothing here. Like more often than not, my experience, like not even like nothing nice here. It's just like, oh, there's, there's really actually, where's all the clothes? Like, yeah. The yeah. No. How weird. Um, agreed, normally agreed. I experience the opposite where the racks are like full to the point that you can't actually look through them. 
And that's with so many clothes already going, not even coming into the retail space here. That's right. So I'm, yeah. I'm curious. I mean, I think that there, it is a really important thing. We need to make sure everyone is clothed and that everyone has access to, especially like the work clothes that they need. And like there is an abundance of things to offer. If people are not able to access them, to me, that's like a distribution problem. So how can, if I'm going to build a business where I'm encouraging more people to be resellers, um, like how can we make sure that that doesn't impede the access for people who need that service? Because it's not a supply problem. No, it's totally not. I mean, every thrift store I go to, especially if I go to a Goodwill, um, and I, I say Goodwill because that's like the massive, right? It is stuffed to the gills with clothes that are barely, if even at all, worn. The Goodwill that is closest to where I live here in Lancaster County has six racks in the front that are just brand new with tags. Um, oh, my gosh. And, like, the sheer volume of clothing that's moving in and out of there every day is mind-blowing. And this is a small, rural Goodwill in a very small town. Uh mm-hmm. And you know that most of the stuff is not actually getting bought and is being then pulled back off and sold off or, you know, shipped overseas. I also would say that, yes, I, I think the Goodwill has raised their prices, um, especially if you live in an urban area. Out here, the, the Goodwills all operate off of a, like, all the tops are $5 kind of thing. All the dresses yeah. are 8 And so they're still really reasonably priced. But in Portland, I noticed otherwise when I was living there. So. Mm-hmm. I do see that as a valid argument, but the thrift stores also are have raised their prices over time because real estate is more expensive. Uh, yeah. Hiring people is more expensive. Thrift stores at this point are dealing with such an excess in donations that it oh, is yeah. cost liability. Like fast fashion has made it more expensive to run a thrift store. Yeah, I don't remember the number, but I heard somewhere along the way like an astounding number that is what Goodwill pays, like, on an annual basis to, like, deal with the clothing and things it's, that they can't sell. It's, it's, it's wild. astronomical. Yeah, yeah. I remember reading it for California alone, and it was so much money. And, you know, they have to cover that cost by selling stuff at a higher price. So if you want to blame the increase in cost at thrift stores on anything – you can really thank fast fashion, which has become a burden for thrift stores. Yeah, you know, and our like, and our consumer habits, right? Like there is sort of to that notion that like, oh, I'll just like this has been hanging in my closet and I don't really love it, so I'll give it to a thrift store so somebody can make me like someone who mm-hmm, needs it can mm-hmm. have it. Like, no, that's not what's gonna happen. <laughs> Maybe like, I, I you have to just give it away, like of course, but like you know. Right. That's right. not an that's not like the answer to overconsumption isn't donation. No, no. It's like it's like thinking that recycling the fact that recycling exists right. means you can drink as many plastic water bottles as you want every day. Yeah. And that's just not true either. But I do think like you know, we are just beginning this like secondhand movement and making it a mainstream idea. I think a piece of that is ensuring that people with lower incomes, people who are poor have access to this clothing. And maybe that means changing the model for how it works right now. Like maybe a certain percentage of 
all garments received are donated to people for free. You know, like yeah. imagine working that into your platform or something, or maybe yeah. not even that because you're going to have individual sellers. What if people who were on, you know, SNAP benefits or, you know, EBT could get a voucher from you every month for yeah. 20, 30, 50 bucks that they could use to buy secondhand clothes with. I think that's where we need to rethink the model, but we need to get everyone in the thrift stores or at least buying secondhand clothing. So we just need to change how things work right now, but we don't need to discourage people from secondhand shopping by shaming them for gentrifying it. Yeah. Yeah. I I agree. I agree. And totally that's like one of the big things that I've been thinking about lately. I feel like I've like, I have a really good sense of how I think it'll work to get more people buying more secondhand through the platform and the marketplace that I want to build. Like that, that, that feels like put to bed. I'm sure mm-hmm. it'll change once I have people actually using it. But now my, my focus has really been a lot more on like how to, like how do we make sure that if we're disrupting that space, that these people are not lost mm-hmm. in a mindless disruption, you know? Right. Another good thing about this model is that that can be our priority. We don't have to have the priority that we need to double our business and sell more, you know, twice as much clothes next year that we sell this year or quadruple <laughs> next month, I should say. Yeah. We need to double our sales every month. That, like, we I can mean, have there, different priorities. there are so many ways that you can build that in. You could say like, hey, every purchase gets like a $1 service fee attached to it. And that $1 goes into a fund to provide clothes for needy people. You yeah. know, there's like so yeah. many ways to think about so it. Many. And I, as a customer, would be excited to pay that $1, you know? Right, because you're already saving money on the clothes. Like exactly, like you, exactly. You check off your values, you check off your price tag, you know, you check off having style you love, and you can check off doing something great for other people in the whole process. Right, right. It's, it's just going to involve someone hopefully that's you, like (laughs) setting the tone for how we do these things. Like imagine the volume that Poshmark is fed up to. What if they were doing something like that too? If every secondhand platform out there, even thrift stores, was starting to bake that into the plan, we wouldn't have to worry about gentrifying uh, secondhand and we could all shift our consumption into another space that is not so devastating. There's more than enough clothes to go around. There's just like so many clothes. Like I, everything I read, I'm like appalled. Yeah, yeah. There's there's plenty of clothes for everybody to have all the clothes all the time. So we just need to like rebuild the systems that exist around it. And I, I think since like around 2010, when fast fashion really started picking up and everybody was just buying, 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 the thrift stores have been just trying to stay afloat. They haven't been yeah. able to, like, step back and say, like, let's reorganize how we do this because they're just trying to stay on top of the, like, tsunami of barely worn clothing that they're receiving every day. It was so nice to talk to you today, man. I could talk about this yeah, for, like, you six too. hours. I know. You too. <laughs> <laughs> I could just go on and on. <laughs> so where can everybody who's listening find you? Um, yeah, well, the, the easiest place is on Instagram. My handle is secondhand, like the number two ND, secondhand style crush. My community online, if they want to jump straight to that, is um, members.stylecrush.co. Awesome. I mean, I want you 
to come back and update us on how things are going. Oh, I would love that. Great. Yeah. So we have to stay in touch because I'm, I'm really excited for you and I'm really excited Thank about you. this. Yeah, <laughs> me too. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me, Jennifer. I, I really can't wait to see how her project moves along. And I've asked her to come back and update us because this is really important to me. I'm going to link to her secondhand community, which is called Style Crush in the show notes. So go check it out. And you should definitely give her a follow on Instagram too, at Secondhand Style Crush. And I'll link to all of this in the show notes. I'm just so excited to have someone who truly believes in the importance of secondhand and ethical business practices developing a platform like this. This is what we need. And I know that's where I want to start selling my secondhand stuff. So please support her by giving her a follow. You know, none of the options out there right now are perfect. And we definitely need to work hard to get more of our clothes onto other people rather into the landfills or shredded up. So let's help Jennifer make this happen. I know I'm preaching to the proverbial choir over here, but we need to bring in our acquaintances and relatives that still shop at the mall or TJ Maxx. We need to get them on the secondhand train. You know, maybe we can sell them on the hot deals to be had from secondhand shopping. Maybe they really will be into the environmental aspect of it. I mean, who's ready to take on a thrifting apprentice when the world reopens again? I love the idea of us taking a person who's never been thrifting before and showing them how to do that and, you know, demonstrating for them all of the amazing things that they can find. I mean, we could just convince them that this is the cool thing to do because it is, right? When I say that all of you are influencers, I mean that. You have the power to show the people around you how to shift to secondhand. So let's normalize wearing secondhand clothing and making new things out of existing materials. Let's inspire one another to see treasure and potential in someone else's trash. Let's show the rest of the world that secondhand is a key component of incredible personal style in 2021 and beyond. Thanks for listening to another episode of Close Horse. If you like what you're hearing, please rate and review on Apple Podcasts. Of course I said that. Of course I asked you to do that, right? And don't forget to tell your friends. Also, don't forget that you can find us on Instagram at Close Horse Podcast. And this Friday... I'll be doing another Instagram live at 8 p.m. Eastern time where I'll update you about some new blog stuff and answer your questions about this week's episodes or anything else. I will put up a post in stories earlier in the day where you can start asking your questions. I might even do that on Thursday night. So I have a chance to, you know, organize my thoughts, pull up any data I need for it. So if you have a complicated question or you really want like the best answer ever, Submit those questions in advance. Maybe Brenda will come and attack me again in front of in front of a live audience. Who knows? There's only one way to find out. So be there, or be square. Also, if you want to meet other Close Horse listeners, join the Close Horsing Around Facebook group. I want to say we have about seventy members right now, and we've got some interesting conversations going on over there. I'll share a link in the show notes. And who could forget that the Clothes Horse blog, a.k.a. clotheshorse.world, has arrived. And 
it's not too late to join the party. We're going to need new content all the time. That's the thing about blogs. You got to keep feeding them and feeding them, maybe occasionally giving them some water. So please reach out with your ideas. I know that you're probably saying, I can't write or I don't know anything interesting or whatever, but I guarantee that neither of those statements are true and you have so much talent and wisdom to share with all of us. So reach out to me at amanda at closehorse.world or send your idea to submissions at closehorse.world. I can't wait to see what all of us are going to do this year. So exciting. If you love the sound of my voice, and I mean, who wouldn't? Uh, I know Brenda did bite me on Instagram, but she gives my voice 10 out of 10. You should check out my other podcast, The Department, which I co-host with my friend Kim. We are in the midst of what seems to be a never-ending series about the 2000s. Seriously, there's just always something else to cover. (laughs) In our most recent episode, we tackled hipster misogyny and... Why were hipsters so scammy? You have to listen to find out. I'll share a link in the show notes. Thanks, as always, to Dustin Travis White for our music and audio support. Bye. (laughs) 